Hello, and welcome to the Curious One podcast. My name is Emma Krebs. I created this podcast to be able to have conversations that were lacking through my daily interactions, as I always felt the longing to dive deeper. This space is for meaningful conversations that I hope help to broaden my perspectives and maybe even yours as well. Hello, and welcome back to the Curious One podcast. This is episode one of a three-part series called Life on the Spectrum, where I dive headfirst into gaining more insight into ASD. Autism Spectrum Disorder, also known as ASD, can be clinically defined as a condition related to brain development that impacts how a person perceives and socializes with others causing problems in social interaction and communication. The disorder also includes limited and repetitive patterns of behavior. Throughout the next three episodes, we will journey through three entirely different perspectives. Individuals will share either their personal journey with ASD or shed light onto what their involvement with individuals who have ASD has looked like. ASD falls along a spectrum, and as Becca said in part one of the series, autism is different for everyone. With each individual that has ASD, they will have an entirely different way of identifying with autism. I hope through listening to a range of perspectives, you are able to see just how diverse ASD can be. My aim with this series is to shed more awareness onto what ASD truly is, how diverse everyone's experience can be, address stigmas commonly associated with autism, to highlight strengths these individuals have, and learn ways we can better support those with ASD, including their loved ones. Join me as we navigate these conversations together and learn more about our community, including ourselves through the process. In my first conversation, I sat down with Becca Laurie, a neurodiversity and inclusion consultant. At the age of 36, Becca was diagnosed with autism. She shares with me her journey, as well as the challenges many individuals, specifically adults, with ASD face, while also shedding light onto why so many females go undiagnosed. Rise with me, friends, and let's jump into the episode. May you be inspired, may you be curious, and may you learn more about yourself as we learn about others enjoy. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Becca, and coming on the Curious One podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. It is my pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. I usually speak to a very small community, so the opportunity to sort of open up, that is very good. appreciate it. Amazing. That's that's my intention behind this. Um, so before we dive further into the conversation and I hear your perspective, Would you maybe give a bit of background into who you are specifically? I've been looking, I've been doing some research, obviously, on you, and you are a neurodiversity and inclusion consultant. Do you want to maybe start with what that is and unbox that for for individuals that are listening? Sure. Um, So what I do for work is um, I consult with various companies or organizations or schools, universities, whatever, Um, And if they're working on a project where it involves either the neurodiverse or particularly autism, um, I will help to kind of guide them through what it is they're doing as that's my field. So it's a lot of temporary kind of gig work that goes into kind of making all of these things happen. I also do some training at different organizations um, and that kind of stuff. um, And that's what pays the bills. Um, And that allows me to offer what I offer in terms of services directly to my population um, for either really low cost or no cost. That's awesome. That's amazing that you're doing that. Um, Do you find that there's usually like a niche that you work in? Is it like a lot of corporate or is it kind of a broad range? Um, It's it's broadening up now. Um, I think the conversation around neurodiversity is getting out into the world. And it's a greater conversation than just the little conversation we were having in our tiny community. And so um, these days I am, I'm getting pulled in a lot of different directions um, that I wasn't pulled into and where um, it's kind of the conversation has become a global conversation and a societal conversation um, rather than just a really small advocacy movement, which it was when I first kind of began. Hmm. Interesting. That's an interesting point. So then this wasn't work that you, I'm assuming, were always involved in, as I know a bit of background about your journey from 
um, some interviews I listened to. Are you able to touch on a bit about your journey with ASD personally? Sure. Um, so I am currently 44 years old, but eight years ago when I was turned just turned 36, I was diagnosed with autism. Um, I had had a very uncomfortable life up until then. I'd struggled with a lot of different parts of my life. I think as an adult, the one that bothered everyone the most, including me, was my struggles with employment. Um, and I kind of, at age 33, I had done 15 jobs in 13 years. And um, I just kind of said, you know what? I don't know what it is about me or why I can't maintain these jobs, why I can't do them. Um, past a certain point, right? So I would go in, I'd kind of pick up the expertise of whatever the job was, um, do it well. And then at a certain point, at about three, four months in, I would kind of know what I was doing and be comfortable. And the social conversations would begin and the social kind of confusion would begin. And um, that's usually when I would get fired or quit. So that was sort of the cycle that I went through. Um, and it was uncomfortable. I was at an unhappy, kind of isolated, really angry, angry person. Um, and I was extremely suicidal by the time my diagnosis came around. I actually came to my diagnosis um, while I was looking for a physical ailment. I was having trouble with migraine headaches and I was um, in search of that. I was in search of a solution to that. And I found sensory processing disorder and then um, autism. And it just, it, the Wikipedia entries matched my life. And the idea that nobody had ever thought of this before um, was crazy because I had spent my entire life from nine years old until 24 seeing therapists for all of the various issues that I was having um, that were mislabeled and I was mismedicated for. Um, and so um, when my diagnosis came around, it was a relief for me. It was a validation. Um, I'd had my reality invalidated my entire life. Um, and this diagnosis validated every experience that I had. Um, and that was extremely important because it gave me a sense of hope that, in fact, I wasn't the only one of me and I wasn't broken and I wasn't, you know, a worthless person. But I had this issue that no one else had ever kind of given a name to. And um, because of that, when I was sort of a year out of diagnosis, I decided it was time to give back and I wanted to pay it forward. I didn't want there to be another me, another woman at 36 just finding out. Right. Um, and so I started to give back to the nonprofit, my local nonprofit that sort of had escorted me through my diagnosis. And so I volunteered there for a little bit and they really loved my work ethic and what I was about. And so they asked me to work there instead of volunteering. So and I just kind of worked my way up in nonprofit from there. Um, and I was in nonprofit for a good chunk of years before I went out on my own as a consultant. That's amazing. Thank you. That was that was a lot you just shared, um, a lot to process, but also a lot of vulnerability. So I really, I really appreciate you you being open with me about that. There's, there's so many questions I want to ask from all that was said there. There's so many directions I can go. Maybe one question that, like, you made a lot of, a lot of heavy points there, and mm -hmm. just, just impactful points. But one question that I, for some reason was the first thing that came to mind, and I'm just going to go with it, um, just because I, I would like to explore it a bit further to maybe understand more what it is like to have ASD or to, is that the correct term? Like, or to you can. Um, so spectrum? there's a couple of different things that we say. So um, historically, it was, it used to be, we talked about classic canner autism, um, okay. which is sort of that picture of autism that you see in the movies, right? Mm -hmm. And then we had another separate contingent of people who we said had Asperger's, right? And yeah. that was, it meant a different thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. But now our DSM has finally got itself in order, and we now say autism spectrum disorder because we know it's a spectrum and we know that it looks very different with everybody that has it, right? Mm -hmm. So we we kind of took that and all of us that were being separated by this these small points in our diagnosis were umbrellaed under this one term. Um, in the UK, however, they say autism spectrum condition. And many people prefer that because we don't feel disordered. We are different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, in the UK, they say autism spectrum condition. And in the States and North America, we tend to say autism spectrum disorder or ASD. Um, I myself just say autism. Um, I don't, it, you know, I don't have to say the scientific diagnosis term, right, um, when I'm talking about it. So I say autism and I refer to myself as an autistic. Okay. 
Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Mm -hmm. I know that in some of your previous interviews, you said that employment is one of the hardest things that um, people on individuals on the spectrum face in their adult life. And so you said during your time having a job, it began to become difficult three to four months into it because of social conversations and social interactions. Are you able to explain more so we can understand what the obstacles were that you were facing in those moments? Sure. Um, so for me, and this, of course, is my experience, so it's not a, a generalized experience. It's just my experience. Um, so what would happen for me is at a job, I'm somebody who thoroughly enjoys learning new things, who is an information sponge, right? And I like to learn how to do things, and I like to do it well, and then I like to do it better. I like to figure out better ways to do it and faster ways to do it um, and more convenient ways to do it, whatever it is. Um, so when I talk about those jobs, you need to understand that I was doing everything from commercial construction to being a vet tech to being somebody's executive assistant. So we're talking about a really wide range of skills, right? Um, and I was able to do all of those things. I was able to make it through the interview and tell, you know, prove to people that I could learn this new skill, whatever it was. Um, and it would take me about three or four months time to really get the hang of the job, to understand all the intricacies of what it is that this company does or who the players are inside the company, um, just how what's expected of their employees, sort of how fast people move. But um, because I have autism and because of the way that my brain processes information, I have the particular ability to pick up these skills really quickly. And I also have the ability as a pattern thinker to see the patterns where errors are occurring and to kind of make order out of chaos in a processing situation, right? In a systemization kind of thing. Um, and what that means when it plays out is that I learn jobs really fast. I get really good at them really fast. And um, I'm always wanting to improve on stuff as soon as I figure it out. Um, the other thing that plays into this is that as an autistic person, I don't mince words. I don't waste words. I don't use fluffy words. I don't dress things up with words. Very direct communicator. Um, and for some reason, we've decided societally that, that um, it is better to be passive aggressive than to be direct and blunt. Mm. And that direct and blunt is often interpreted as rude. Um, so what would happen is I would be in a job, I'd be very quietly to myself, learning this new skill, getting better at it, just trying to, to do that. And about the three or four month mark, I've now kind of got the hang of it. I can start to see the improvements that should be made. I can see some of the errors. I can see the people that aren't working as hard as the other people, right? I can see all of those things happening. Um, and it's really hard for me to not want to fix it. And to not want to adjust it and be like, wait, we're all here to do this job. And shouldn't we be doing this job to the best of our ability? And that means producing as much as quickly, right? And sort of that idea and how that plays out to people in an office space is that they feel threatened. They feel like they're being critiqued. They feel like they're being replaced and they feel threatened by you. Um, they, uh, bosses don't tend to appreciate direct communication. Um, so they get threatened as well. Um, and what ends up happening is that socially, I stop belonging in the workplace, right? Socially, I'm there to work. I just want to work and go home and everybody else wants to do other stuff while they're at work. And that doesn't happen for me. Um, and so that would really be create an issue. And then it's incredibly hard for me in my black and white brain to sit by while I have come up with a solution to a problem and everyone says, no, let's not use that solution. We've always done it this way. Mm. We've always done it this way, this way, that way. Um, and so that doesn't click in my brain and I don't like working with or for people for that. I can't do what a lot of people can do, which is go to work and leave it at work and not be invested in the work that they're doing. Um, I can't work if I'm not invested in it. Um, and so that's where the problems used to come up. Interesting. It's crazy though that this uh, this was this was a, a obstacle for you. When in reality, this is such a strength. I feel like that people on the spectrum do have. When you're saying they're very direct with how they communicate, which especially I'm. I live in Canada, so <laughs> if you guys think you beat around the bush there, Canadians are worse. Yeah. And um, also too, just you sound like an ideal employee to me, you know, like there is, well, that's I, the whole thing, right. It's, it's a mystery. I just wrote an article about it actually. So it's, it's a mystery, right? It's such a conundrum. How can that be? 
how can these two diametrically opposed things be happening at the same time, right? Most autistics are um, loyal employees. We work our hardest and best for whomever we're working for, right? We tend to be rule followers. We tend to like routine, which means we tend to get there on time and leave on time, right? We're though, we, we are, in effect, ideal employees. We're out-of-the-box thinkers. We're innovative, right? We're all of these positive things. We can hyper-focus when we're interested. We can produce more in less amount of time. We're very detail-oriented. There's all these amazing things. And yet, because socially we present differently, we were categorized as poor hires, right? And that is a mistake, especially in a world like we're living in today when really nobody's the face of the company anymore. Technology is the face of the company, right? And, you know, when we're talking about customer service, we're now talking about phone calls and technology and computerized everything, right? We're not talking about some of the concerns that the socially different would have, you know, addressed. Um, Now we're looking at things like, you know, what's the best setup for a workplace? Can we have a good environment and, a, and ha- can we have well-being in our workplace, right? And those are things we've never really thought about before as a society. And so um, those are the things that matter a lot to autistics, right? Um, it matters to me that I can sit down at my computer and in four hours do what most people can do in eight um, because I just focus and do that. But that means I have another four hours at my office job to sit there and do nothing right? Which is torture. Um, And then, you know, I personally, it takes my brain a little bit to transition from waking up to functionally being a human being, right? Um, So that means that a nine to five or an eight to four is an impossible task for me. Getting up, doing the getting ready and the masking that you have to do to look right for your office, right? And do those things, the driving or transportation, whatever that is for you. Um, And then the, the social of being in an office and then sharing an environment with people who don't have the sensitivity that you do. And all of that stuff is difficult. And it's all difficult regardless of the job itself. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we start making changes. Now it's especially ripe for it. We're all working remotely. Right. Um, and that is a sore subject for those of us who have disabilities. Um, I have asked for the last five years for remote accommodations and for a flexible schedule. Right. Not less work, not doing it any differently or any special accommodations other than I'd like to skip out on the transportation daily and getting dressed for you people. And also um, I can produce a lot more faster than you. And if I'm in an an environment where I'm not being distracted even more, right? Mm -hmm. So I was denied it all the time, but we're looking at a world now that's functioning almost entirely remotely. (laughs) I was denied it for one reason and one reason only. It's not the way we do it. That's not how we've always done it. We've always done it here in the office, be here physical. If I give you that special accommodation, I have to do it for everybody. If I let you turn your lights lower, I have to do it for everybody. Okay, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with everybody having a flexible schedule or working remotely some of the time, right? Well, there was a lot wrong with it until we had a pandemic. (laughs) Wow. This is insane, like, because to me, listening to it as someone that does not have autism, these are all issues that I feel I I face or are things that I'm aware of, but obviously on a on a much smaller scale. I'm not I'm not disregarding your experience, but even you said a, something about masking yourself to head into work. That that is how I feel as an individual sometimes or conforming to these structural ways of living our lives even outside of work. You just really where am I going with this? That just you really got my brain turning back. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's well cuz if you think about it, right? It really is that stubbornness yeah. is that we we have as a society is what's holding us back, right? Uh-huh. If I wouldn't have be dealing with an 85% unemployment rate of a group of people that all they want to do is work. I wouldn't be dealing with that if we took off the judgment of, you know, social, right? Mm-hmm. If we pulled away that judgment, if we pulled away the judgment on needing to work from home, if we pulled away the judgment on um, dress codes, if we pulled away the the kind of 
um, judgment on participating in work events, right? Things like that. Um, if we were actually all judged on how we did our job, right? We would be like opening the planet to people. Okay. We talk about disability culture, right? And disability culture has been asking for accommodations for a really long time. And every time we get one and it gets put into place and we fought for it, everyone goes, well, why, why didn't we do that before? It was so easy. I mean, to accommodate folks with wheelchairs, I just have to fix the sidewalks on the corners. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's the same, it's that same stubborn mentality that's keeping people with disabilities and particularly those of us with invisible disabilities out of the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, just, it's a stubborn behavior. And now that the world is turning to it, everyone that I'm talking to is going, that's crazy. How could that have been happening to you all this time? Look how easy it is for us to go remote, right? <laughs> Powers that be, right? And those in charge and, and those that are, you know, kind of stuck in their way of thinking aren't ready to open themselves to that. And that's where everybody's losing. Mm-hmm. Truly, everyone, all of society is losing for losing for sure. There's a question I should have asked straight off at the beginning, and it is just, in your own words, how do you define ASD? Um, for me, it's a really simple definition. Um, autism is the filter through which I process the world, period. Amazing. Um, my brain is wired. However, it's wired. My brain is wired differently than every single person on this planet because I'm me. Right. Um, and the way my brain is wired is how I process information, whether it's information from the outside world, my environment or information from another person or information from a book. Right. Or information from my pets. doesn't matter. It's all going through the autism filter. That's how it's going. I dream in autism. Right. There's no person with autism. I don't carry my autism like luggage. I don't get to take it off at the end of a hard day, right? It's it's who I am and it's how I understand the world, right? When you ask me questions, I'm literally processing your questions through an autism filter because that's the only filter I have. Um, and that's all it is. It's really just that basic. Um, the, the science behind the differences, the genetics behind the differences, the medications that help with some of the differences, none of that um, is part of the definition, right? None of that is really what it is. All it is, is it's like a different operating system. I just filter everything through a different filter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we just, as a society, only operate one way, as you've just explained with your situation with work. And so I just, I couldn't imagine what, what it would be like to to live in a society that is just so blinded to other ways well, of tell you what it feels like undiagnosed it feels like a landmine undiagnosed it feels like a trap it feels like a joke it feels like somebody put you on this planet for just their amusement um it's isolating it makes you angry you feel unheard people are constantly telling you that the way you experience the world is not real um and not right and that the way you naturally your natural inclination to do things like experience joy are not correct Um, And all of that stuff gets corrected. And so by the time, like for me, by the time I got to my diagnosis, I didn't really have an identity um, except for as a very angry, lonely person. That was how everybody knew me, right? Angry, sarcastic, ironic, all of those things. Um, And I I didn't really want to let people in my world because they weren't safe. Um, The diagnosis gives you um, like a structure to look at it all through, um, a way it's like, oh, well, of course you felt this way in this situation because your brain does X, Y, Z. So that's why you had that experience. And that other person has never had that experience. So of course they denied my reality, right? And I have to understand it that way. But now that I know that I have my own way of thinking and my brain works the way it works and it's not wrong or bad, it's just different, right? I get to look at all of those things about me, not as wrong or bad things, but as different things, mm-hmm. right? I get to say that all these things about my pattern thinking and all those things that I was able to say about myself as a strength in the workplace, I can now say I didn't used to see them as that, right? Mm -hmm. I used to see my big mouth as trouble, right? Instead of that, I was a direct communicator. Mm -hmm. 
And so all of that makes a difference about how you feel. You feel worthless, angry, lonely, isolated, right? Broken, right? All of those things. That's how you feel. That's how it feels to be in a world where you don't belong. Um, And then when you realize that it's not that you don't belong in the world, it's that the world wasn't only built for one kind of person, Mm. right? Then you're like, oh, well, then I just need to find my ways around it. I just need to do it my way around it. And suddenly that's an acceptable way to do and to be because you're not this, I'm not a broken neurotypical. I'm an amazing autistic person, right? Difference. Yeah. Yeah. So then I don't know what the number was, but I, and correct me on this if you happen to know, but I, I hear it's like for every nine male that goes diagnosed with autism, there's there's one female or something along those lines. It's a crazy number. Um, it gets better every year. Okay. Um, so that's amazing when, you know, it's gotten better every year since I've been diagnosed. And it was, um, you know, I was one of a group about eight years ago where they were actually starting to encourage female diagnosis, right? But there are women that came before me even in that right? For whom their diagnosis wasn't encouraged at all. And when we have to, what we have to do when we look at those numbers is think historically. We can't look at those numbers and think reality, right? Mm-hmm. Historically, autism was a boy's problem. It was a child's problem. If that we were looking for, ch- for boys, usually white boys, right? And um, that were non-speaking and behavior problems in the classroom. That's, that was it. That was what we were looking for. So if you didn't wave those red flags, no one was thinking autism. So here I was growing up in a time when that's how we thought about autism. And I was a girl, quiet. I just wanted to read what I wanted to read and be left alone and invisible if I could be, right? So as a girl, what a good girl I was. So quiet. I never bothered anybody. I tried not to make trouble, right? So I'm nobody's problem until I became a problem because they didn't know what to do with me because I, my test scores weren't making sense and my homework wasn't making sense, right? And all this other stuff about me wasn't making sense. And once they started to tell me that about myself, I started to behave in response, right? Um, and so I was being told I had very high reading scores. I was a hyperverbal, hyperlexic child. Um, but I also have a learning disability with numbers called dyscalculus. So what I was getting was a mixed profile. I was doing terribly in math and I was at adult reading levels, right? As a child in reading, um, my SAT scores looked like that. They looked split like that. Um, and at the time we didn't talk about people with uneven profiles. We didn't have the term, um, twice exceptional where you're a gifted person who also has a disability, right? We didn't talk in that way. And so I was a problem. I was stubborn. I was obviously lazy in math. I was um, doing it to get attention. I was overdramatic. I was manipulative. I was all of these negative things when in reality, what I was was struggling, right? And um, those labels attach themselves to you internally. And that's how I felt about myself by the time I got my diagnosis. I knew it was true. Right. Um, And that's the stuff that has to change, because when we look now at autism, we know it's a spectrum. We know that that one way of describing autism describes one person with autism. Right. Every single person on the spectrum, because we are human beings, is different. Our brand of autism is different. Our strengths, our challenges are different. Um, And because of that, we can't be looking for this one particular Thing. And once we opened up diagnosis to that understanding, we started to get some real numbers. That's when we started to get these big leaps and counts because um, where everyone started to say, oh, it's an epidemic. Autism is an epidemic. It's just growing. No, uh, the numbers actually haven't changed. Just our counted numbers have changed. Um, and that when diagnosis got better, we were able to diagnose more people more accurately. And so those numbers went up. And it's the same thing when we think about girls. As soon as we started to understand, and this happened, of course, actually, I feel like the female portion of it happened after we sort of opened up autism to everybody, right? The understanding that women could almost present invisibly, 
um, could still be struggling internally with autistic struggles was something that was new. And once we brought that understanding into the, into the conversation, we started to see more numbers of women getting diagnosed, right? Um, the problem is that we're all adults now. So um, for people that are used to testing children, hard for them to see us, right? For someone who's never done any research or understanding about the way that females present with autism, never going to see us in the diagnosis, right? So um, what we're doing now in terms of fixing diagnosis is dealing with that gender bias in the diagnosis and doing even better at our diagnosis to um, get a more complete picture so that we can catch these women that otherwise fly under the radar because of the way that diagnosis is being done, the way the questions are set up, whatever that may be, right? There's definitely gender bias in there. Um, and where we get these numbers, I think when we... Um, finally get some, like we, we've been counting for quite a while. Mind you, we've only been counting eight-year-olds. So the eight-year-olds that they started counting back then versus the eight-year-olds now, we're going to have many more, right? Because we're looking and we're better at it. Um, so those numbers are going to continue to change. And I think when they finally settle out, we're going to see a lot more equality between the female and the male testing. And I think we're also going to be finding out more about those of us who are gender non-binary or gender questioning, um, because that in the autism community is a very, very real um, thing. We have a large percentage of our community who question their gender, don't see their gender through traditional roles, who are non-binary. Um, and we need to understand that. Um, and I'm sure that it has to do with the way that we process information and what our brains deem important versus what neurotypical brains or what society has told us to deem important. Um, but we'll get there eventually. Awesome. I was going to ask you about the, the non-binary, sorry, non-binary um, individuals in regards to the gender bias, because yeah, I'm glad you touched on why females just fly under the radar quite often. Do you also think that society's pressure, which which you did say just on at, like what happened to you, just being a quiet female and in the corner and you have to be kind and, and just this um, stigma we have around uh, feminism and females mm -hmm. contributes to females going undiagnosed? Oh, it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, we, we teach women, girls, we teach them to be quiet. We teach them to follow the rules. We teach them to look pretty, right? Mm -hmm. We teach them to be nice, to smile a lot, right? Yeah. We teach that. We, we actively seek that out of our girls. Um, and on top of it, because girls and boys are different, um, we socialize differently and we develop differently. And girls have a tendency to um, grow into their social earlier. Um, they also have a tendency to be a little bit more unkind than boys. Um, so uh, and a little more covert than boys in their social, right? So if a boy decides he doesn't like a boy, he just stands up and punches him in the face, right? And everyone goes, what a good boy, strong boy standing up for himself, right? And if a girl did that, you know, we'd send her to prison or a mental institution. What's wrong with her that she can't keep her hands to it, right? Yeah. Women don't do that, right? And so... It's, it's, we're getting different information. And then as girls socialize, if they don't like another girl, because the option to just punch them in the face has been removed, we make fun of them. We ostracize. We socially bully, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's what girls do. We say one thing to some girl's face and another thing behind their back to all our friends, right? And that social behavior is incredibly difficult for people on the spectrum. Mm. Um, we don't really lie. We don't like to lie. Um, we can learn to lie, but it's not a preference. Again, we like to be direct. We don't like to be fluffy. So eight-year-old me, you're going to ask me if you look good in that shirt and I don't think so. I'm going to tell you no. Right. And all the other girls are going to tell me how mean I am. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what we're, the pressure that we're putting on our girls and girls learn autism or not how to mask very early on, how to do the appropriate social things so that everyone's happy with them, so that they can please everybody, right? And it's that attitude that teaches girls how to mask. And we learn it so early compared to boys 
that um, nobody can see our autism and it becomes instead an internal storm um, that finds other ways out. Mm. Interesting. Internal storm. That that's that's a good one. So then I want to ask a question around vocabulary again, because I, as I do my research, there's more high functioning versus um, low functioning individuals on the spectrum. And I've heard you kind of push back on that term. Can mm-hmm. you speak to that? Yes. Um, when we use functioning labels, um, that is a way for non-autistic people to describe their experience with autistic people. So if I am an autistic person who um, masks very well, it's not obvious to you that I have autism or that I'm struggling. Um, It doesn't interrupt or communicate or what it is that you need from me, whatever the interaction is about, right? Um, If I don't Um, I don't have any kind of visible supports, like another person with me or um, an aid for some of us who are um, non-speaking or become non-speaking. We use an AAC device to communicate. But if I don't have any of those things, everyone tells me how high functioning I am. Uh, And that's because I can function with them at their level, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then when we say low functioning, it's because that person needs some kind of visible and obvious support or their brand of autism is visually apparent to the other party, right? And then because it's obvious, they become low functioning. Well, that's not an accurate assessment of what the hell is going on. It's just not. It's the external experience of what's going on. It's, It's the perceived understanding of what's going on. And in reality, what's going on is autism. Right. And when I sit next to someone who is a non-speaking individual that may use an AAC device, that may have a support person with them 24 hours a day, I am still sitting next to a peer. Okay, they still have the sensory challenges that I have. They still have um, the gastro issues that I have. They still process things the way that I do and filter things the way that I do. I have more in common with that non-speaking person sitting next to me than any neurotypical on this planet, okay? So those are my peers, right? And when we look at each other, what we see is, oh my God, your challenges are external. Everyone can see your challenges. And when they look at me, that my challenges are internal. They can't see my challenges, right? And this isn't from me. This I have to give credit where credit is due to Dina Gassner. She's the first person that talked about external challenges and internal challenges. And it is the most accurate way to describe what is happening. Because if my challenges are internal, of course, you're going to see me as high functioning, right? Because you can't see how much struggle I'm having. You don't have any idea and it doesn't impact how we, we operate together. And therefore, I'm high functioning. Meanwhile, inside, I can be going, please don't become selectively mute. It's so bright in here. I can put on my sunglasses, but people are going to judge me. I can't listen to that noise in the background. I can't hear what these people are saying to me. Um, I ate lunch today and it upset my stomach. And now I can't think about anything else but that, right? Um, And whatever that may be, right? And you don't know that before I got to that job interview, four people had to coach me through getting dressed, right? And all of but I'm quote unquote high functioning. And let me tell you, 95% of the time, I do not feel high functioning, right? I have challenges and I, they just happen to not impact the people around me. Mm-hmm. And that's the way to really look at it, right? So that the people who we would call low functioning really accurately have external challenges that you can see. That's mm-hmm. it. That's really eye-opening, the external versus internal challenges, for sure. This next question is, what would be some of the biggest obstacles you face with your autism? But I want to reword it and say, in what ways does society function that is so, is is like contrasting to how you function or more opposite? Do do you get what I'm trying to say? A lot of the like um, employment stuff, right? Yeah. This stuff yeah. will never, ever make sense to me. My brain okay. will never be 
able to accept any other version of it, right? When I hear the excuses that society gives for the way we behave in the workplace, none of them float to me, right? The reality is my skill set represents what we tell everyone is the ideal employee, but that's not the truth, right? And so- what I mean, it's it's like a crazy thing. So what the challenges that I face because of society's setup, I don't know what else to call it because of the way that we've let society grow, right? Um, they are monolithic and yet they don't seem that way, right? Mm-hmm. So it's those little things, right, in a job. But do that 13 times in 15 years at a job and you've had it, right? Why can't I just say what I mean? Why can't I just directly say to you, no bullshit, here's the truth. And it's only um, kind of compounded by the fact that I was born and raised in New York. So I'm really a no bullshit person, right? Mm-hmm. So when people are like, oh, you, you can't talk that way. You can't, you can't be that direct. I want to know why. Why? Why can't I say the words without the, I really think you're beautiful today and I love that sweater. And by the way, you're fired, right? Right? Why? Why can't I? Why? And I will never be able to make that make sense to me because that's the way the world is. And that's not how I am. And throw my hands in the air. That will always be a difficult for me until the world changes. Right. Other stuff um, that is changing. Right. That is changing with the generations behind me because you can see the desire for social initiatives as part of making money. Right. And we see the. Um, desire to understand and accept all of our fellow human beings, right? And all of that way of thinking is the change that autistics and disabled people and anybody with any difference has been waiting for. For all of the everybody else to say, enough of this bullshit, right? I don't want to work seven days a week. I don't want to work nine to five. I want to work on my laptop at the beach and get you the same report, right? And that's what people are now asking for. And in return, that is making things that were challenging easier mm-hmm. for the on the spectrum. Technology is a gift. Technology allows autistic people to communicate with a communication device that everyone else uses, right? I like to point out that everyone who is non-speaking and that uses an AAC device is just one of the rest of us with a cell phone. Yeah. Right. It's a communication device. Right. And when you text with me, you don't hear my voice. So you don't need that part. Right. So technology has done us a favor. We now communicate via email. Having people's conversations and the things they've asked me for in writing has been a glory. No, no, no. I remember details. Here's what you asked me for. And here it is in writing. Right. Mm -hmm. And Um, So that's been a blessing. Being able to work remotely has been a blessing and working a flex schedule has been a blessing. Part of the reason that I went out, that I stopped working in nonprofit and to work on my own was for these things, right? I just did it before it was cool, right? But that stuff is getting um, out of our way. We're genuinely now interested and concerned about our fellow human being. We're not trying to whisper the word cancer anymore, right? Um, and that those changes are taking away a lot of the barriers that autistics face. Um, some of them can't be helped, right? Some of them are the way that the world was built. They're environmental, right? Like the mall. The mall is kryptonite to an autistic person, right? Build a building with all these different stores in it so you can get everything you need all at once and then put your entire town in it on the same day. And now go. You have to go there. Right. That's a a crazy idea. And why would human beings want that? And we've created a world with that a world where we shove as many of our bodies as possible into small spaces to make money. Right. And things like that. And that's not a healthy way for human beings to live. And when we all start realizing, you know what? City life isn't so healthy. Pandemic. Right. And all of these things and the way we're living, we're not doing as much play as we're doing work. And that's not, doesn't feel good. We say family is important, but we're not spending time with them. And right. Everybody's questioning all of these things. And when we all let go of those, everyone's supposed to standards, that's when autistic people will flourish. Hmm. Right. Because it's the, it's too loud in here, but nobody thinks about the sound in restaurants and nobody thinks about the smells in restaurants 
And the same thing in schools, right? That we don't think about the lighting and we don't think about the chairs and we don't think about the dress code. And yet those are the very small incidental parts of society that make it so difficult for autistic mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I have two more questions before we close up. So one of them is, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about ASD? Or you can switch it. If if there was one thing that you could say to society about ASD, what would it be? Um, we're human beings, right? So like any human condition that any human being suffers with, we suffer with too, right? Just the, the way that wires in our brains are connected doesn't take away our humanness. So we do have feelings. We do get sad. We do have empathy. We do have things that bring us joy. We do have things that we that bring us passion and give us purpose. And we do have preferences and opinions. Um, and they are valid and they are equal. And as soon as we're allowed to um, give into all of those things in our authentic way um, and not have to hide it from people, um, we're pretty amazing, right? Um, so don't forget our humanness, right? We have challenges in the way and we, we process things different than you, but we still have breakups and get sad and we still get the flu and we still um, have to go to the grocery store, right? It's just that our challenges in the grocery store are different than the challenges you face. And the things that bring us joy are different than the things that bring you joy. And if we could just remove the judgment from the situation, if we could stop judging each other's joy, right? It would be easier for everybody. That's beautiful. My final question uh, for you today is, how can we better support individuals and their loved ones with ASD? Um, We need to really learn to listen. And not listen, but listen and and digest and like real listening, right? Not hearing, true listening. Um, Autistics have been talking for a really long time. Um, but we've been ignored for a really long time. Um, so we're going to keep talking because we perseverate and we will be um, persevering in our advocacy regardless and persevering in, in having our authentic selves accepted regardless. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just it's just such a simple process that we can just learn to let go of some of our, our dislike for difference. I think. Um, and I think that would, that would really change a lot. I love that. Let go of our dislike for difference. I'm writing that down. I mean, it's that simple, right? I mean, all of these, all of the other kind of civil rights movements that have come before, like this autistic rights movement, um, the LGBT community, we should just be writing our history right in theirs, right? We can do the same thing and take back our language and take back um, our culture and and really let those things grow. We can do those things, right? We're, we're, we're placed for them, but it's about educating and it's about learning that it's it really is about a civil rights movement and understanding that this neurological difference that we have is no different than a gender difference or a sexuality difference or a race difference or a religious difference. It's just a difference. And why do we feel this need to have to have something we can judge about, right? That we have to, you can't be different. You, okay. You can't be different in your color and your race. And then we're like, okay, you can be different in your color and your race, but you can't be different in your gender and sexuality. Well, okay, you can be different in your gender and sexuality, but your thinking can't be different, right? I mean, we're just going through a a cycle with all of it. And what we need to do is ditch the dislike of difference, any difference. That is that is great. If if people want to learn more about um, ASD, was there any resources that you would really recommend and that were influential for you? Um, there are a few. Um, but I think the one that I really feel is the most important to our community right now um, is the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. Uh, they are a group that is a nonprofit. Um, they do um, advocacy work for the autistic community and they are run by autistics. They have autistics on their board. They have um, autistics in every position and they are legitimately across the board representing the autistic voice in a true way. Um, Whereas most organizations out there are still 
slow to have employees that are autistic, slow to have board members that are autistic, slow to put autistics in positions of power or where they can be noticed. Um, and that's shameful and that needs to change. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and if individuals would like to get in contact with you, do you feel comfortable sharing where they can find you? Absolutely. Um, I am easy to find. My website is Becca Lori and it's L-O-R-Y dot com. And anything you want of, my, of mine or to find of mine is all there because I'm an organization person. And so I keep everything there. Um, so I have some writing on there. All my social media is on there. The course that I wrote and teach uh, is on there and my newsletters there. So um, go hop around, take a look. If you like the way that I'm talking about things and you're interested in the way I see other things or how I might be able to help educate you or help you as an autistic individual, um, head to my website. My contact form literally goes directly to my inbox. So you're not, it's not going in between. It goes directly to my inbox. Or if you're more comfortable, you can email me directly at info at BeccaLaurie.com. Amazing. And I'll have both the Autism Self Advocacy Advocacy Network and your information in the show notes as well. And I've been um, navigating through your website and there's a lot of information and a lot of content. So um, thank you for creating such an informative space. Thank you so much for taking a look at it and sharing it with everyone. I really do appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It needs to be shared for sure. Um Becca, like my brain is just now <laughs> burning up just from everything you've brought up today. It's it's really been an eye-opening conversation um, and I've gained a lot from it. I'm, I have a lot to chew on for sure. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your time as well. I would like to take a moment to say thank you to Becca once again for having this conversation with me. You opened my eyes even further to understanding what the world must be like for those on the spectrum. This conversation really got my brain turning. Stay tuned for part two of the Life on the Spectrum series, where I sit down with Chelsea Romero. Chelsea's son, Justice, was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. Justice is now seven years of age and nonverbal, while currently learning how to use an iPad to communicate. Tune in to part two of Life on the Spectrum to learn more about Justice's story. If you would like to further this conversation and get in touch, visit my Instagram at the Curious One Podcast. For more information, resources, and show notes, please head to thecuriousonepodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, be well.